couple of days ago, the death toll in Japan officially passed the 10,000 mark, with over 17,000 still missing, of whom many, we suppose, will be dead. It might be that you are massively impacted by those by that kind of scale of numbers of deaths. Or it might be that you've been impacted simply by the loss of one person close to you. Either way, we know that death is a problem to which God better have an answer. And that's not least because it's pretty obvious that there is no justice in life. Why should 10,000 people simply be wiped away? Why should the dictator who dies after murdering his own people simply get away with it? The problem is that death is a great leveler. And if some of those who are leveled by death have never faced justice, where's the justice in that? The answer to death has to have something to do with the persistence of life beyond death, yes, But if there's a God involved, then there has to be some justice. And what we've got in front of us tonight is is almost like a piece of music. It's nearly all speech. Nothing much happens. But it's like a music score in which there are themes that are at the front and then at the back, life and death and judgment, woven together with different ones at the front at different times. And that means, I have to say, I don't think it's always easy, this passage. It isn't. It doesn't have that nice convenience of and then, and then, and then. So what I want to do is to move through it and catch a sense of the overall shape and then focus down on three things. I hope one of which, at least, uh, might, just might, change your life. We begin in verse 16 with the word so, meaning something else has happened. Jesus, uh, in the earlier part of this chapter, of verse 5, has healed uh, a man at the pool of Bethesda. If you were here last week, you'll have heard about that. But the leaders of the Jews are now pressurizing him because the healing was on a Sabbath when you're not supposed to work. And in verse 17, Jesus offers an answer that kind of picks up on a discussion that was going on at the time. It was very kind of clever... Uh, And it ran like this. God has decreed a rest on the Sabbath. But does God rest on the Sabbath? Because if God rests on the Sabbath and isn't working, who's keeping the universe going? It's a really big deal, that question. And Jesus takes a certain side. He says, yes, God is working. But he also says, and this God, by the way, is my Father, and so I too am working. And that leads to the first indication in this Gospel that they're going to seek his death. Because, as they say, he makes himself equal with God. Which splendidly, in verse 19, he precisely goes on not to do. He goes on to assert that he is different from God the Father. And then there's this rather touching moment. We read this kind of passage... Uh, So many years later, 
thinking of Jesus and these kind of conversations you get in John's Gospel about the Son and the Father, and we think of the complications of the relationships within God. And yet, what's the betting that in his mind, the imagery of this came from the carpenter's shop in Nazareth? From verse 19. The son can do only what he sees his father doing, because whatever the father does, the son also does. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. It goes on. Yes, to your amazement, he'll show him even greater things, and there's more to come. Well, there's been a healing, says Jesus, but there will be even greater things, And there are two things he draws attention to. Raising the dead and being a judge. The first of those, everyone knew that God would one day raise the dead. Well, says Jesus, just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so the Son, too, will give life. So don't be surprised if you've just seen a healing. But you're going to see more than that. Then secondly, everyone knew that God would judge well, says Jesus, actually it's not quite like that. Yes, that God, uh, the God the Father has a judgment, but the Father wants the Son to be as honored as he is himself. And so he gives to the Son the capacity to express judgment. And these things that will be seen have in fact already begun. Anyone, verse 24, who hears my word and recognizes that behind my word is the Father who sent me, That person has eternal life and has crossed over from death to life. That's going on right now. As people who are dead in sin turn to hear my word, those dead people are discovering that they will live. It's going on right now. It's already begun. The day is coming and now is, he says. But one day it's going to become even more astonishing because at a future time... And he says, a time is coming when the physically dead, not just the spiritually dead, the physically dead will rise out of their graves and they will be judged into those who live and those who will be condemned. And it's going to be me, says Jesus, doing the judging. But the judgment is simply the expression of the justice of the one whose will I am always seeking to do. Now that's the line of the narrative, of the the speech that Jesus is giving here. And it goes on for all the way through to the end of chapter 5. Now, there is one quick issue that uh, we need to uh, dispatch to the boundary. Uh, Please reassure me afterwards that you noticed it, because otherwise um, this is going to be wasted. But I wonder if you picked it up. Verse 24, Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Hear and believe. But then, verse 29, those who have done good will rise to live, and those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. Well, which is it? What matters? Hearing and believing, or what we've done? Seems like there's a big difference. Works or faith? Well, flick over the page to chapter 6 and verse 29. 
Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So back in verse, uh, in, in chapter 5, those who have done good are simply those who've believed. If you have a memory of the earlier chapters, perhaps you've been here through these early chapters of John. In terms of chapter 3, they are those who've come into the light and live by the truth of Jesus, the Son of the Father. Those who have done evil in verse 29 are simply the others, those who've not believed. And in terms of chapter 3, they're those who cling to the darkness, who won't believe because their deeds are evil. So you can't set up a tension between verse 24 and verse 29. It's about a, a, a hearing and believing because to believe is good and not to believe is wicked. And that's just dispatching one issue. It's not really going into any great depth. It's just staying with this line of the argument. Jesus is being threatened with death because they, we're told, are trying to kill him. But we, with a twist of irony, hear Jesus pointing out that he himself has life in himself. That's where we're going in that, in this whole stretch of the passage. And now I promised three things that I I think are potentially life-changing. And I begin from asking this question, so what? I want to be honest here. If you're here this evening as someone for whom death and judgment are a matter of anxiety then it may well be that this goes straight to your heart. Look at verse 24 in all its power. Whoever, so that that at least means you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He's crossed over from death to life. And you may say, well, that's it. I can see how that might change my life, and that is quite possible. There's no one way into the life of Christ. We all have a different way, only this morning... Someone from the front of church described coming to Christ based on a text in Matthew's Gospel that I have never heard anyone uh, use or describe as being their way into the life of Christ. But hallelujah, God makes all things possible. And you can be of whatever age. It might be you've just lost a grandparent. Then issues of death and judgment may be very real to you right now. You may want to know just what happens. We know all too well how easy it is to pass from life to death. We'll all do it. But how could it be possible to pass from death to life? Well, it really is the case that Jesus tells us. When I was uh, about 20, I went with a team of uh, fellow students uh, to a resort, Yorette de Mar, on the Spanish Costa Brava. Can anyone remember the Costa Brava? I'm not sure anyone goes on holiday to the Costa Brava these days. Don't be ashamed. Come on. Put your hands up. Good. Okay. I'd like to know who I'm talking to. Um, it was full of um, awful concrete hotels. Um, and they, uh, it, it, it wasn't exactly Ibiza. It wasn't exactly a clubbing scene. And the people that we went to spend time with uh, had nothing to do in the evenings they were deprived of Coronation Street. 
There probably only was one channel in those days in black and white, I don't know. But um, they were bored out of their skulls. And so we sat down at coffee with them and we talked the gospel. And I have seen that verse, John 5, 24, turn people's lives all the way around, 180 degrees. And maybe it'll be that way for you. You know something's not right. And you know that something better awaits. Well, there it is. If you want to move from death to life, then take Jesus at his word, believe in him who sent him, and you will indeed cross over. If you want to know more, ask me. We did say a few other things in those concrete hotel lounges, and they are still true. But that's the first thing that might just change your life. If you have not crossed over, you can. And you can do so tonight. Because Jesus crossed out your sin. But if the first thing is addressed to those who are looking for that shift from death to life, the other two things are simply things that have struck me as I look at them now. And they have the potential to change our lives, which I suppose is always, from the preacher, just code for, they certainly, I think, have the potential to change mine. And I know I need my life changing. Because I'm not sure that I come now to John chapter 5 and find that it fires me up as once it did. Or as it fires up those who may still be facing death and life issues more sharply than I am. In order to grab this thing called life that Jesus is talking about and live it so that it could be remotely of interest to someone else, I've got to have some better grasp of what this thing is. Not just to know that there's death and there's life, but to have something to say about them. And I promised three things. One was for those who need to cross over, but some of us have. And these two things have struck me. See, I think I'd always looked at verse 24 and thought of it as a kind of gateway. If I hear the word of Jesus and believe the Father who sent him, then it is like the opening of the door. Just like that door there. I open that door, and that door opens onto this thing called eternal life, a life in which I am not condemned. And so far as it goes, I'm sure that's right. But I think it goes further. In its own way, I actually think it's simpler than that. I think it's not just the opening of a door into something else. If I take into account everything that Jesus is saying in this passage about the relationship between himself and his Father, then it drives me to the view that if I truly hear his word, if I truly believe him who sent me, then actually that is eternal life. To hear the word is to have life. They're not two separate things with one as a door to the other. They're the same thing. Eternal life, whatever else we say about it, is a life lived in which we are glad to hear the voice of the Son of God. Having tracked John's gospel through these chapters, I think more than I've done before, I I think I understand that to live a life that has eternal quality to it, undefeated by death, is to live simply as one who gladly hears the voice of Jesus as foundational in that life. And of course, it's not just hearing. 
The Greek for I hear uh, is the word akuo. The Greek for the word I obey is hupako. One is kind of a modification of the other. One, the word for obey really means I hear, but with that intensity that what I do follows. Akuo, hupakuo. So it's not so much I hear the word and then I get life, but I hear, and hearing the voice of God is life. And that feels to me like something that has the potential to change my life because it stops me from thinking of two things that are rather thin and instead thinking of one thing that's very rich. It, it, it changes my life because it links my life to the exact life of Jesus himself. It's not an abstract eternal life. And it doesn't restrict what eternal life will mean. It's simply living in this particular relationship. And I can live hearing Jesus' voice, and so can you. This thing. Maybe that's less exotic than you thought I meant. But imagine what kind of God it would be that would say, well, I'm going to leave you my word, but there's actually a secret deposit that's only going to be available to some of you. No, just this is the complete revelation of the Son of God. If I read this, I hear his voice. If I hear his voice, I have eternal life. And the eternal life that is described is the kind of life that is lived by the sort of people who live this stuff. Let me go on to the third of these three things. It's in the same kind of area. I want to know more, you see, about what this eternal life will look like. And it seems to me to be described in Jesus' own description of his life with his father. Look at verse 19. This is going to be close work, so listen up. Verse 19. I tell you the truth, the son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his father doing. See, the son, even the son of God, does not automatically, as it were, just do everything that the father does. Rather, the father shows him And the son is then able to echo it. Now that's put in clumsier phrasing than Jesus uses. But it's trying to get at the sense that this isn't automatic. It's a living, it's a dynamic relationship in which one is dependent on the other. And so if I, I for myself, I have to hear the word of the son, and if I have to believe in the the father behind him, then there's a similar relationship. If my relationship with God the Father and the Son is one of hearing and then doing, I am depending on Jesus in just the way that Jesus depends on the Father. Now, he's going to say it in other places in in John's Gospel and sometimes more clearly than this, I think. But it's another instance of this uh, indication that the essence of this eternal life is in some sense not an abstract thing, but it's it's being caught up into the life of God himself. There's always that temptation, isn't there, to think that there were other peoples who had it easier, perhaps the, the early disciples or Jesus 
himself. They had it so much easier in their knowledge of God. But it's all dependent. It's not automatic for any of them. It's all about hearing, seeing, learning. I am not worse off than those disciples. In so many ways I am better because I've got this. Now, if that's what this life is, then this life has the magic and the joy and the deep, deep love of a carpenter father teaching his son or even his daughter how to make that perfect dovetail joint. Whatever it may be. The father reveals and the child hears, sees, learns. There's always that dependency, that delight in playing the roles that are allotted. And if that's the case, if there's always that dependency, let me be clear on two alternatives that I think are ruled out. Firstly, this is not wet. That is, it isn't a kind of This kind of description of eternal life in relationship with Jesus, it's not a turning away from some sort of reality, a working week, Monday to Friday. It's not a turning away to some airy, fairy, pious sentiment. It's not irrelevant that Jesus says, I too, I am working. It doesn't mean that we resign ourselves and our our center of responsibility over to Jesus and say, Well, I don't really do anything. I just listen to Jesus. This relationship is an apprentice relationship. Because the Father loves the Son, he shows him what he, the Father, does. And then he hands on real work to the Son. The Son is, after all, the judge, the one who heals and brings life. And he is a center of responsibility. The Son, we're told, gives life to those to whom he is pleased to give it. It's not just that somehow uh, the the, the Son is some sort of a second-in-command who is given a, a delegated task to do, but told and controlled very precisely. Such is the alliance of the will between the Son and the Father Such is the way in which the apprentice has learned the job of the master. That the the son is himself pleased to give life. The relationship of the son to the father is dependent, but it's not pathetic. It's not pious. It's active and real and responsible. It's not wet. But then secondly, neither is it worldly. I'd always get a little nervous when I hear anyone express the hope that the church ought to be about the real world. When frustrations are expressed that uh, church today wasn't relevant because it didn't deal with Libya or the Olympic Games or how to deal with office gossip. We are not being given here a set of magic answers about the issues that trouble us. But we are being formed into the kind of people who will hear the voice of Jesus, sons and daughters of the Father, who walk with increased confidence into the world 
because we have listened to the voice of Jesus and are confident of life. And I reckon I've, I've barely begun to live what Jesus is describing here. A being with the Father, a joy in hearing the word of the Son. I'm not beating myself up when I say that. I, I reckon I crossed that line from death to life over 30 years ago. But what it means, I'm only very slowly beginning to find out what it means. I simply find it exciting that there's so much more ahead. For some of you, for some of us, the summons tonight, and it's a summons, it's not just a polite inquiry, it's a summons, is to do it. And to do it now because you never have crossed over. If you need more explaining, we will find that we will make that possible. For others, the summons is to find life in the very hearing of the Son of God, to have life in exactly the same way that Jesus has life before his Father. And that excites me. That has the potential to change my life. It gives me reasons to answer these two questions. Why avoid death? Why look for life? Because finally it turns out that life is love. Let's pray. Lord God, we will take in our hands this evening the signs of life and death. The body broken, the blood poured out. The one who died, that we may have life the one who crossed over from life to death so that we can cross over from death to life. We'll take those signs in our hands and we ask that the reality of what that means would be embedded in our hearts and minds. That the life we live may be eternal and have the look of the life that the Son lives with the Father. Amen.